With President-elect Trump soon to take office, America is faced with a grim irony. Many voters with economic grievances about a rigged system helped Trump win office, and yet given his major appointments so far, it seems unlikely that our next president will do anything to fundamentally address those problems, and it seems likely he'll make them worse. Welcome to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. Tonight, desperately seeking solutions, economic inequality, and how to fix it. Assuming the next president has no ability, vision, or desire to combat the staggering inequality of our new gilded age, we're left with the question of how to move forward without the help of government. In conversation with two people interested in solutions to inequality, we'll look at two models for economic change. The first with Chuck Collins, inequality activist, author of Born on Third Base, and former one percenter, and heir to the Oscar Mayer fortune who gave away his wealth. Collins advocates reaching out to the amenable millionaires and billionaires to form a cross-class coalition for change. He's the inspiration for our first song, CCR's Fortunate Son. Patriotic, wealthy people concerned about the health of our economic system exist, insists Collins, in a spectrum of awareness, much like everyone else. And for those wealthy people who aren't already fully allied with the shrinking middle and grinding lower classes of America, Collins argues for consciousness raising, teaching the 1% about the ways in which they owe the system and its inhabitants of all classes for their privileged lives. In the second half of the show, we'll look to Scandinavia for other ideas of how to advance equality. Author of Viking Economics, George Lakey, will show us how 100 years ago, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and others experienced their own Gilded Age and stultifying inequality, and how they threw off the economic elite, rethought how real democracy should shape the economy, and over the last century have grown into some of the most productive, free, and equal societies in the industrialized world. Desperately Seeking Solutions with Chuck Collins and George Lakey, tonight on Interchange. Chuck Collins, welcome to Interchange. Great to be with you, Doug. Let's just jump in, Chuck, and tell a little bit about yourself, your own story. Uh, the The kicker here for everyone is that uh, you gave away your wealth. Uh, that's part of your story. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, you know, for the last 30 years, I've been looking at these issues of extreme inequality, the growing gap between the rich and poor. But I grew up in the 1%. My great-grandfather was a, opened a butcher shop in Chicago in the 1880s, and uh, over several generations that company grew. And, you know, Oscar Mayer now, a well-known <laughs> national brand. Um, but uh, it's no longer a family business, and I was, uh, you know, during my 20s, the company sold to uh, a large, you know, to craft and to larger food corporations. But uh, our family was pretty wealthy. I grew up in a, a very affluent kind of a bubble of a community, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. So, you know, I grew up in those circumstances and there's a number of things that happened to me. And some of those are stories I tell in uh, the book Born on Third Base. Um, but uh, it has really informed how I think about inequality and how we can fix it. Hmm. So you, you do have a sense that it's possible to fix inequality in this country. Well, you know, we, we had an extreme form of inequality 100 years ago, uh, the first Gilded Age, you know, right. 1890 to 1920 or so. And, and uh, we did a number of things as a society to reverse those inequalities that led to really a period of uh, shared prosperity after World War II, 
1947 to really the mid-70s. So there's a number of things I think we can learn from that, as well as learning from, you know, what other countries have done to reduce inequality and also maintain, you know, a healthy uh, market economy. So I, I have complete uh, hope that we can reverse these inequalities. I don't know about it in the short term, but I think over the longer term, it's very, very possible and, and actually necessary. Well, we do like to be sure we, we talk about long term. I think part of the problem is we do want the world to be better now, 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 um, If you, especially if the world is not so great for you, or even if it's uh, moderately bad. You, you always think that now is the time, and the only way to make that happen, I suppose, is is to do the work. And one of the things that, that you just said there was interesting to me as well. We, uh, I, I, As I said, I just talked to uh, George Lakey about his book, Viking Economics, and we talk about how they threw off their own economic elite. Um, we talked about the Gilded Age as well and, and how it had to be a throwing off of the economic elite. And part of your book is not it's not about throwing off the economic elite. It's uh, trying to turn their heads, trying to turn them back towards um, the rest of us, I suppose. Uh, you know, I think uh, we can learn a lot from, from George's book and the experience of the, the Nordic countries. Um, and I'd be curious to know in that history uh, in Norway and Sweden and, and Denmark, if there were people who were wealthy allies to those movements, mm -hmm. because that's, that's kind of what I see is I think, uh, I think we also need to push back and reverse a system that's moving toward oligarchy um, but one of the ways I've noticed that we could potentially do that faster uh, and more nonviolently, perhaps, is by enlisting uh, allies. I mean, they're already there. There are these networks of wealthy individuals uh, who are big supporters of raising minimum wage and fair tax policies and eliminating student debt and those sort of things. And I think those are all things that we we should be uh, champions of. And we and I think that there are wealthy people who who I think are eager and willing to step up. You, what you say, you know, you were born in this in this uh, upper class, the one percent, and you gave away your money and went about doing uh, activist work, trying to organize things. Are there people like you? Like part of the part of where uh, where I get sort of stuck in in the conversation here in terms of trying to imagine empathy for wealthy people. Um, or trying to be open-hearted, as you say in your book as well, is that I want them all to be like you, not, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. I mean, wealth accumulation, wealthy inequality uh, doesn't get better if the people that I'm trying to be open-hearted with keep their money, even if they give it away. You address the problems of philanthropy in your book as well, and we can talk about that. But there's a part of me that just says, why can't they all be like Chuck Collins? Well, I mean, uh, I totally get your skepticism. I mean, the good news is I keep meeting people every day and I try to interview them and, and tell their stories who are kind of taking very, very bold steps to rethink, you know, their privilege. And, and uh, particularly younger people, there's this network called Resource Generation, younger people under 35 who uh, either have built businesses and have entrepreneurial wealth or their inherited wealth. But they actually understand that the you know, the system is is sort of extractive, that their wealth is the result of other people. Uh, losing something, uh, not that it's all a zero sum game, but but it is in some in some very fundamental ways. You know, mm -hmm. the return to capital, the return to wealth is is uh, greater than the return to labor now. Right. So right. those kinds of so there are people who really get that, and they're looking at how to use their advantages, including giving away substantial assets uh, to address it. So one thing, though, I think is important is you know think of it as a continuum of 
of engagement. And I also think it's important that some of the wealthy people that I work with, like through the Patriotic Millionaires Network, they're maybe they're not going to give away all their assets, but they are very important validators of the movements that are out there. You know, they say, yeah, we should have a $15 minimum wage. I support the fight for 15 or uh, people like me should pay a lot more taxes. And I support all the efforts to preserve the estate tax and preserve a, you know, a progressive tax system. And they tell stories of how their wealth came about, not just through their own effort, but through the investments of society. They sort of help demystify the myth of deservedness, right. which is one of the things that really holds these inequalities in place. Yeah, that's so the I, idea I, behind the book, right? Born on third yeah. base is the born on third base and thinking you hit a triple. Yeah, and, and to have, uh, you know, hundreds of people stand up and say, you know, I was born on first base or second base or I had these advantages. This is how it looks. And these are the ways society helped me create my wealth. It sort of demystifies that. And it's a counter to the people who say, you know, I did this on my own and I don't owe anything to anybody. And, right. you know, I don't owe, have any obligation to pay taxes. Right. It's a counter story. And that's a really helpful contribution to our movements. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Chuck Collins, wealth inequality activist and author of the new book, Born on Third Base. Yeah, ideas, I agree. The I guess I, I continue to get um, stuck in the space where, and you know, I guess it might be because I don't have wealth and I don't know how to think about it in that way. If I had millions or billions and felt like giving it away, I'd there'd be a part of me that wanted to direct it, right? So I think part of the issue for me is thinking that people that um, want to dispel the myth of deservedness or um, belief in their own unique uh, qualities that make them wealthy also tend to, it seems to me, want to direct that wealth or want to be able to say how that wealth is used. Uh, I don't know if that's entirely true. I think it's part of the issue that we run into with with the idea of hedge funders funding education or, you know, that there's this sense that you can get a wealthy person wanting to give away money, but it has to be given away in a particular way and it has to be done in a, uh, for particular causes that they agree or believe in. Yeah, and then th this is where I think we, we come into the, the limits of philanthropy, mm -hmm. which is not a democratic system, obviously. This is, although it's subsidized by we the taxpayer, it's a system of private power right. uh, and decision making. Um, so, uh, and it's true. People who who make a lot of money uh, tend to think they know better and tend to think that they can think do things better than government. And so, they want to have their philanthropy sort of reflect their sort of venture entrepreneurships. You know, we're going to solve this problem uh, in a creative way through philanthropy. And uh, a, a really important part of this book, Born on Third Base, and, and the work that I do is just to say, look, you know, there's there's obviously good things that happen that are funded by charitable dollars, but it is not a substitute for a progressive tax system and an adequately funded public sector. That That's the foundation right. for both addressing real inequality and um, creating, you know, social mobility and creating a kind of a, you know, moving us toward a more... Uh, Nordic type economy. Right. Um, so the Nordic countries don't, you know, over exaggerate the importance of charity. They tax the wealthy and invest in public goods. Right. 
and we should be moving in that direction. And and the confusion about charity actually, I think, muddles it sometimes. Right. Uh, let's let's actually look at the real quickly the uh, what you call the WPA for affluent kids. I never thought about that before, and it was a, it was a real a real eye opener in my own life. Right, is to understand the the real distinctions uh, on, in growing up and how how we pass on even those those opportunities that don't seem like they're great big deals while you're growing up. They turn out to be big deals. Yeah, you know that. I mean, I. I you know, grew up in a very wealthy community, uh, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, and you have a lot of people with a lot of property that needs to be taken care of. So if you're a teenager, it's like a, it's a full employment act. You can be walking dogs and cleaning pools and raking leaves and trimming hedges and lawns and taking care of other wealthy kids, you know, babysitting. And there's like a lot of work to be done. Yeah, pets and whatnot. Uh, and now I live in, you know, an urban neighborhood in Boston and everybody's like, do it yourself. And we can't hire the teenagers to do the chores that we can't afford, you know, to hire out. And <laughs> right. So, it's, but it's part, I have to say, it's part of my unfolding revelations just about how much advantage right. I have. It's like, and uh, there's a, there's a whole sociology of what they call the, the inter intergenerational transmission of advantage. Right. And it's it's not just like whopper inheritances like here, half a half a million dollars. It's like all these, you know, uh here's here's an here's the old car that uh we're right. gonna buy a new car and you can, you know, here Doug, you can have the old car. Right. The uh, three year old car. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all the and then even the fact that I don't have to worry about taking care of my parents because they're wealthy. Right. And what a huge, yeah, that's a you know, one. so many people have to think about the long-term care issues for their families. Right. And so it's just like a, a million and one little advantages. And many of them are kind of invisible or not that well understood. So I had a question about, uh, and this actually takes us back to, we were talking about taxes before, and and people in particular who say, you know, corporations should pay taxes, or I, as a wealthy person, should pay taxes. Uh, of those people you talk to, do any of them uh, uh, intentionally actually pay their taxes versus having a, a tax accountant and tax lawyers who, who take their money and put it in lots of places so they can hide their money as well? Or do they say, you know what, all cards, all, you know, all cards on the table, I'm going to pay tax on everything? You know, I see the whole uh, I, I see the whole spectrum. I would say what what's consistent about a lot of the people, like in the Patriotic Millionaires Network and others, is they they don't go to these extreme lengths of hiring, you know, the wealth defense industry to game the system to reduce their taxes to zero or to nothing, very low. Um, so there's a whole there's a there's a decision there about how aggressive to be in tax avoidance. This mm. this is not an issue for the 99%. I mean, we, you know, if your income comes from your wages, it gets taken out of your paycheck, and there's not a lot of gaming you can do with that. But if you're, you know, Donald Trump or people in the in, in, the, in the highly wealthy groups, there's a huge uh, spectrum of things you can do to game your taxes down to very little. Um, you know, you can treat your... You, know, you can create trusts and, you know, you can pretend that your income is capital income, not income from work. And, you know, there's all kinds of things people do. And uh, so I think part of the responsibility is wealthy people to not, you know, not not hire that wealth defense industry, but pay pay your taxes and, and then lobby to restore 
the progressivity of the tax system that existed, you know, a generation ago. So a wealthy person needs to first recognize that wealth isn't their birthright, that they are a part of a social system wherein they achieved their wealth or it was given to them in some sense. I don't mean given. I don't, again, I don't want to tell people they haven't done anything they've done to get the money they have, but they first have to realize that they are part of the system and give back to it um, and not, as we say, via charity, but rather just in taxes. taxes. So they have to believe that the government is valuable as well, that government itself works. No, I think you're, you're, there's two really important points that I would just underscore there. One is, you know, we're not saying individuals don't matter. You know, individual effort and creativity and entrepreneurship is something that's important in our society and, you know, should be rewarded and lifted up. But that no one is makes certain levels of wealth in the society without this commonwealth of public investments and other people's labor and uh, nature's gifts and, you know, this and, and uh, you know, part of part of the reason we pay taxes is it's like it's like economic opportunity recycling. It's the way you pay back the commonwealth that made your wealth possible. Uh, and and that's that. And, and the, the people who get that, the implications of that are uh, one, you start to see the web of supports that are out there many of which are invisible, and uh, and then you understand, oh, what we do in a good society is we pay our taxes, and that's how you build up the, maintain the institutions and the public investments so that other people can have opportunities. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's really an, like, it's really just a hard thing to try to get your hand around this, uh, this idea that people have been taught, right, and, and this is another point we, we talked about with with George Lakey was just that, you know, these are new systems, right? These are, this is, you know, capitalism isn't ancient, you know, it's an, it's a new system. The idea of uh, the Nordic countries being successful in the way they're successful is also new and can be changed. Our circumstances can change. The idea that there is a government or there is a governing body that we all agree uh, can serve us as one in a sense that the the country has a role in 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 helping itself not helping its ideology but helping the people who live in it uh is it's we've kind of lost the idea that that's possible you know we're stuck in this me you know every person for themselves entre- and, and and this is where entrepreneurial entrepreneurial uh ideas get stuck is because, you know, it seems like a good idea to be able to support yourself, but it's also, as you say, we lack the safety net to take risks. Uh, we feel like we're always on our own. There's there's a lot that has to change. There's a lot that has to be done. There's a lot that has to just be different. And yeah. I'm, I'm just not even sure where to go with it. This is part of my own despondency. <laughs> it's part of why I do the the program is I'm, I'm seeking for something to say, you know, we can, we can get together, we can do these things. Uh, and uh, I'm happy for wealthy people to be a part of it, but I want them to just give us all their money. Uh, and I don't mean just give it to me, obviously. Uh, but I think, as you say, that's what taxes do. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's, again, a, a thing that people don't want to do to have money. <laughs> they don't want to give that money away. Um, but that is what's necessary. I, that, is, that is just absolutely necessary. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know I 
I'm I think like an organizer. I'm thinking, okay, well, there's a there's a constituency out there that's already right where you're at, Doug, who believe, you know, uh, society has a legitimate claim on this wealth, and we should find ways to return it back to the community and the commonweal. And then there are other people who are very living still inside sort of the myth of deservedness and are kind of unreachable. And then there's a segment of people who I think want to be engaged, could be engaged. And part of it is to say, you know, as I say in Born on Third Base, come home, bring your wealth home, uh, share the wealth, but pay your pay your darn taxes. Uh, tell true stories about the origins of your wealth, help demystify that sort of mythology of deservedness. Right. And when I say bring your wealth home, I mean, talking about like take out of the financial casino, the, the wall street, you right. know, casino, take it out of the offshore systems, uh, out of the fossil fuel sector and put it in the real economy of goods and services in greater Bloomington or wherever you are. And, uh, you know, empower others, you know, give up the decision making about all of that as well. You right. know, share, right. share the power. Ultimately, it's about power and, and transitioning power to be more broadly owned and controlled. That's what a good democracy is. Right. Um, so I think there is this little micro movement emerging around this and it's not insignificant over the long term. I think we can be part of a movement that changes the horrible trajectory that we're currently on. They used to tell me I was building a tree. It's time for a break. You're listening to Brother Can You Spare a Dime, performed by Tom Waits. We'll turn from the U.S. and its growing inequality toward the Nordic countries, seeking a model for economic change. When Interchange returns on WFHB. I was always there, right there on the job.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our first half of the show was with Chuck Collins, Oscar Mayer heir who gave away his fortune on uniting the 1 and 99% to achieve more economic justice. Now we'll switch to George Lakey, author of Viking Economics, as he tells us how the Scandinavians overthrew their economic masters in the early 20th century and grew a new type of economy into a model for the modern world. Lakey starts by telling us how economically similar to America today, countries like Sweden, Norway, and Denmark were about 100 years ago. A flimsy democracy ruled by economic elites who were far more advantaged by the system than the vast majority of citizens. We'll discuss nuances between their 20th century situation and America's current problems, along with the revolutionary turmoil that countries like Sweden had to experience before throwing off their economic oppressors and creating a fairer society. Give us a little bit of an idea about um, Viking. You know what what you mean by Viking, I suppose, in in this sense. What are these Nordic countries? Well, the Nordic countries that I studied are Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and Iceland. And what they have in common, there's a larger term Nordic that includes the Finland. Hmm. But the uh, reason I was particularly interested in them is that they all come from the ancient Vikings of a thousand years ago. And I was interested in the cultural, iconic character of the ancient Vikings insofar as it might influence the willingness of the countries I studied to be uh, to to just be courageous enough, really, to go where no one had gone before. The the Nordic economic model, as the economists call it, is really new and it was only invented 80 years ago. Hmm. And so. Um, I, I, I just had to wonder, as I was studying the, the nature of the model, I had to keep asking myself, so why were these people willing to take this chance? Because nobody else had done this in history. Why were they willing to go? And maybe it has to do with the inspiration they give themselves from the ancient Vikings who went where no one had gone before <laughs> and uh, even crossed the stormy North Atlantic in order to uh, to get to Canada, not because they even knew that Canada was there, but only because they were willing to get out there and see what's up. So, uh, George, we have a sense, uh, I think it's a peculiar sense perhaps, but uh, maybe it's because we don't think about it too frequently or don't know quite how to think about it. Nordic and Viking, it does call up an ancient people, but your book is, as you say, talking about a fairly recent development in economics for this part, part of the world, these countries in particular. What was Norway like, or no, excuse me, these Nordic countries, what what were they like before this change or that we're going to talk about? What, what are they coming out of? I looked uh, just briefly a little bit uh, about some background right there uh countries with uh, monarchies generally is that correct uh, where they've they've come out of a past that that maybe you know we don't quite understand here in this country monarchy what is that and why would we do that and where are they coming from so what what do the countries used to be like before we talk about what they're like now well, with regard to monarchy, that's different from us, of course. But there were ways in which 100 years ago they were similar to us. Mm. For example, they had an enormous wealth gap from the poor to the very rich, a very, very huge gap. That's like our country has right now. Another thing in common 
is tremendous poverty. They had such a high degree of poverty that they were hemorrhaging their people to other countries. Think how many Norwegians came to the U.S. and Canada, other countries, Swedes, Danes. They were fleeing from the lack of opportunity and the starvation hmm. that was characteristic of their country. So they were in terrible economic shape. And another thing that uh, they have in common, had in common then with us now, is that they had pretend democracies. That is to say, they had parliaments. Yes, they had monarchies, but by by a hundred years ago, the monarchs were very, very weak. They were constitutional monarchs. So uh, what they really had was a kind of pretend democracy in which parliament appeared to be doing the ruling and there were free elections for parliament. But on the other hand, no matter what the issue was, it just it turned out that the economic elite got their way. Mm -hmm. And that's similar to our situation now. Sure. So when you say there are similar circumstances to how we are now, is that a situation, obviously we went through a, a, a period we call the Gilded Era. Do you think that this is a, a, a similar, I mean, obviously we have that sense perhaps we're in the Gilded Era again or a new Gilded Age. And was that what Nor uh, the Nor Nordic countries were in also in a sense? Is this, is this a sort of a natural history of how we've come to, to be in capitalist countries? These are, this, these are capitalist countries as well? Uh, yes, they were definitely capitalist countries. I think the gilded part was more experienced by Sweden and Denmark because they were richer. And Norway didn't get much gilding because mm. Norway was, a, and Iceland, both of those, were kind of country cousins, you might say, mm -hmm. the poor cousins of the uh, of the rich Swedes and Danes. But they all did, you're right, they all had in common a big commitment to capitalism in, on the part of the economic elite that ran them. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with George Lakey, author of Viking Economics, about the Nordic model for economic equality. So there was a change. Again, these are world historic uh, sort of uh, arguments or thoughts we're having here in the sense that we, we work through our own history and time and say, what happened to us? You know, how do we decide to do the things or how did the U.S. decide to go the directions it went in? And here are uh, here is an example of, of a group or a block of countries that didn't go in that direction, went in a different direction than, than the U.S. went in. And so we, we're going to try and look at them as parallels of places we could have been like or they could have been like us. They could have gone in the direction we went in. Instead, they went in a different direction, chose chose to make these decisions that that helped them in a particular way and now are, are held up to be um, shining examples for a different way to approach economic life, to approach uh, work life, uh, and things of that nature. So what happened, at, at what point did all this decide, you know, come to a head and, the, and their gilded era, you know, need to have need like the people decide we have to we have to stop doing this well roughly a century ago there's very small movements in each of those countries uh, that believed an alternative was possible that they shouldn't have to put up with this degree of injustice and and uh, and poverty um, that small movement about a hundred years ago started to get larger and larger more and more people awakened for one thing to the fact that they had a pretend democracy mm. and they've been buying the idea that they had some that you know that they had broken free from the old feudal pattern of monarchies and that they'd they developed democracy but in fact they didn't and so they were waking up to that 
And another thing they were waking up to was their own sense of agency. For example, in Sweden especially, they were the forerunners of this, they were uh, developing a lot of co-ops and in order to get things marketed, for example, farmers marketing their milk uh, and cheese through dairy co-ops. Um, the the um, fisher folk in Norway were creating cooperatives in order to buy larger fishing boats in order to be able to get larger catches. That kind of thing was really catching on. And in Denmark, um, I have to say the agricultural uh, co-ops were really remarkable, growing rapidly. And so um, about that time, it, it, uh, slightly different for different countries, you see people getting more and more of a sense of their own competency. And also on the, on the worker front, the industrial workers were starting to do strikes. And some of the strikes were working and increasing their wages. Some of the strikes were not working. But nevertheless, there was a sense, we can do something. We can do something besides run to America. We could actually mm -hmm. stay here and start to make a difference. And as that, uh, as that mood, you might say, or as that confidence built and spread among the people, those tiny movements became larger and larger. And they became so self-confident that they really developed a vision of what it was that could replace the old uh, capitalist mode that they were used to. So when you say people discovered they had pretend democracy, what what did they end up having? Did they have real democracy or was there a way in which they, they created a different kind of political system or did they just try to actually make the one they had be a real democracy? Well, they kept the form of the parliament, but the, it was more of a shadow play hmm. before. And, you know, in the old day, the form of the parliament was there, but it was the economic elite that would tell the parliament what to do. What changed was that these movements, as they became large enough to do so, pushed the economic elite into the shadows mm -hmm. instead of having them uh, running things. So their dominant position in each of those countries became instead a kind of, uh, well, almost subservient, really, because by, the, by 1931, for example, in Sweden, to be a little more specific, in Sweden, there was a confrontation, um, all-out confrontation between the economic elite on the one hand and the workers and farmers on the other. And uh, the troops were called out mm -hmm. and troops fired into demonstrations uh, by, by the people and uh, killed a whole bunch of people. And then the uh, workers thought, let's declare general strike in all of Sweden. This is a local massacre, but all of Sweden is involved. And they called for a general strike and there was tremendous response all over Sweden. And the result was that the, the government fell. The government that represented the economic elite, the conservative party, it fell. And it was possible then for the people waiting in the wings, the social democrats, to step in and say, okay, we'll run the government now, we'll run the economy, we will take the direction of the economy, and we will change it. And so they did. Hmm. Well, George, was there a, um, in these countries, a kind of a buffer class? We we talk about, you know, a lot of times, you know, pundits, etc., talk about the waning of the middle class and how the you know the middle class is important to this or that but generally the middle class is a buffer class between the upper class and the and the really poor and you know ch changing or losing middle class 
stand, uh, excuse me, middle class uh, uh, position is a, a way to lead to these very clear um, roads, I suppose, toward the Nordic um, changes in a sense, right? When all of a sudden there are only elites and there are only poor people. You know, we still have a, a sense of buffer class in this country. I think that's maybe one of the larger distinctions where people will still want to side with the upper class, will still want to be the upper class, will say, I don't want to fall into poverty. <clears throat> Excuse me, I am not the 99% or, you know, there's always, so far that's been, I think, a, a great issue or a great challenge in the world is that the, the buffer class has been the problem in some sense. You're right about that. And it was a problem there as well. Of course, the, their buffer classes were smaller because in those days the economic um, <clears throat> structure was such that those the buffer class would be smaller. However, um, the the working uh, class people in in uh, Norway, Sweden, and so on, and the uh, farmers were not willing to completely give up on the buffer class. And the people, this will not surprise you, the people in the buffer class who became most open and then became actual allies of the poor and working class people were the students. Mm -hmm. So the university students then really, uh, I think it's just true everywhere I know that the university students tend to be a little more open to new thoughts, new ideas. And so they became open to, oh, there's this major struggle going on. The economic elite, which is sometimes our parents, (laughs) (laughs) uh, or at least our uncles or grandparents, and they, you know, they're on one side and then the workers, but, but the workers have a terrible time and the farmers do and so the majority does so let's join the uh the majority and help them out and it was significant especially in norway uh which is the the place where i studied most of all the middle class uh, uh, uh turning you could say uh and there were of course households that were divided with the parents saying to their student son you know why are you why are you lining up with the uh, the enemy and uh, this, and so you can imagine the conversation. <laughs> it's time for a break. You're listening to Björk's Hunter off of 1997's Homogenic. More interchange with George Lakey and Viking Economics when we return. Back to Interchange, I'm Doug Storm. We've been talking inequality today, first with Chuck Collins, who was an heir to a fortune before giving it away and focusing on a cross-class activism in hopes of uniting conscientious one percenters and the 99% in order to lessen inequality. I could 
then George Lakey, author of Viking Economics, on how the Scandinavians threw off their economic elites and created a fairer and still productive society. In this last segment of our show, we'll get into some of the details of economic theory that drove the revolution of Scandinavian class equality. Economist Gunnar Myrdal, who greatly influenced how Nordic countries thought about work. He shared the 1974 Nobel Prize for Economics with Friedrich Hayek. Unlike the most influential economists in America and other and Western countries, who see atomized individuals not interested in community or work, Murdahl saw humans as fundamentally cooperative and interested in productivity. Think five-year-olds who, in their play, naturally take to creating little work-like projects for themselves. Based off of Myrtle's positive assumption about work, the individual, and the collective, Scandinavia constructed an economic system that supports people in their work, emphasizes family and the time off of work, and sees an individual's dissatisfaction with their current line of work as an opportunity to retrain and re-energize their productive and creative energies toward new things. It's a 180 turn from America's punitive view of work, where paid time off is vanishingly rare if it exists at all, and unless you have the kind of third base resources described by our first guest, Chuck Collins, you're stuck in your line of work for life, whether you hate it or not. We'll see Scandinavia's emphasis on support for workers not as a way of creating a lazy, cushy, underproductive socialist paradise, but as a prudent and practical system that empowers people and results in a flourishing, productive, and in some cases, more entrepreneurial economy than we have in the U.S. You make these points throughout the idea that these things didn't happen that long ago. These economic systems didn't exist in perpetuity. There is no such thing as capitalism until that, you know, I don't know, 200 years ago. So, you know, we have to recognize these things as recent, new, and unnecessary. Right? And I, I like that so much about your book. Here's a way to look at something that happened so you know that the one, the system we're in is not necessary. Um, hey, can you tell us a little bit about, I think uh, mentioned in the book, is the uh, Nobel uh, Prize-winning economist, was it Gunnar Myrdal, is that right? That's right, that's can you right. Tell us a little bit about his work. Well, he was so important to the breakthrough that they made with regard to how does the economy, how can an economy be more productive and more just? Um, because in his uh, PhD dissertation, which, he, as you say, got the Nobel Economics Prize, uh, Myrdal found that human nature is actually different from the way the classical economists thought. The classical economists thought nobody wants to work. And the only way you can get people to work is threaten them with awful consequences if they don't. For example, starvation or letting their children starve. Uh, and so, uh, or being at the at, at a highly uh, insecure uh, kind of life that would just go, you know, from uh, from street to street. And so, uh, that was the motivator. And the idea was keep people insecure. And even if they accumulate a, a lot of money, it doesn't mean that they're going to be secure for the long run unless they get even more money and then more money on top of that. So always to drive people by the by the fear of scarcity and of injury in their own lives. That was the classical economist's understanding of human beings. Murdoch said they were wrong fundamentally wrong. That is, it's human nature to want to work. 
And uh, I remember first reading that and thinking, oh, well, I'm a great grandfather. I've seen generations of children play and I've watched them over and over, give them a bunch of blocks, take them into the woods, whatever. Next thing you know, they're creating projects. They're building with the blocks, they're building towers and then they're crashing them down so they can build different kinds of towers. They are, you know, three-year-olds, five-year-olds are busy at work uh, creating work at their level. And and I think that uh, Myrdal turns out, uh, well, the economies of the Nordic countries show that Myrdal was right. Uh, Myrdal said, if because we do want to work, we want the satisfaction of a job well done. We want the chance to be creative. We want the chance to make our mark. Uh, and we want the, that chance also to be part of a larger community. In other words, work is also a passport to citizenship. It's a way of participating in the larger social life. And human beings, he said, are essentially social rather than individual automatons. And so this, this was very different. I mean, Margaret Thatcher, as recently as that, was uh, as the 80s, was saying, oh, no, uh, society is composed of a lot of autonomous individuals who don't want anything to do with each other. And I mean, I'm exaggerating to make the point. And, uh, and, and Murdoch said, was saying, no, 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 human beings are social and pro-work. But... The economy, then, needs to be constructed with that in mind. Therefore, it needs to provide full employment, not unemployment, and it needs to um, reward the, the work, the job well done, in a suitable and just way. And it needs to prepare people to do the work well. Because if you don't offer free training for job training, apprenticeships, and so on and so on, free university Free graduate school, you know, free med school, free law school, free all those uh, business school, engineering, and so on. If you don't offer all these uh, these tools to people, then they will go to their work without the proper tools to feel satisfied uh, that they've done the job well. And so there were a lot of things that flowed from that understanding of human nature once uh, the neighboring countries to Sweden also signed on to that, um, that really created the Nordic economic model. And therefore, there is free higher education. There's the, the society is backing every teenage, every 14 year old up <laughs> in terms of helping them to find their own talents, the ways that they can contribute. Is it is it a working class job? that they can be proud of because there's real craftsmanship attached to it. Are jobs designed in such a way that people can feel satisfied uh, rather than jobs where you never feel like you've gotten anything done? Um, uh, the, the, those features of the Nordic uh, economies are in common, uh, derived from Myrdal, as you say, and also that what it now turns out to be, we can actually measure this experiment of 60 plus years and we can see Worker productivity over there is actually higher than it is in the United States. That is, it does pay off to invest in individual training and education and to support people to change jobs. Let's say you're 45 years old and you've been doing a job for 20 years and you're tired of it. You're burned out. Well, from a Nordic point of view, that's just fine. We, we will support you to go back to school get a different set. Okay, now's the chance for you to be uh, go to law school. You never thought you'd get the chance. Now go do it. 
Go do whatever it is you want to do. Follow your bliss and then re-enter the uh, job world uh, from a new place of a, of a changed career. You will be far more productive and useful if you do that than if you just keep going to retirement <laughs> on something that right. you find profoundly boring. Right. So, And then it pays off in booming economies. They are outpacing the United States in multiple ways. There are even more entrepreneurs in Norway per capita than there are in the United States. There are more startups over there because by an economy that re when you have an economy that really backs you up, then your own creativity can flower. You can want to have a startup if you're that kind of person. And then you can just, uh, and you have the support in the society to get out there and create your startup. Hmm. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with George Lakey, author of Viking Economics, about the Nordic model for economic equality. Well, uh, it all sounds great, and it, it certainly looks great when you see pictures and you see videos of people on their bicycles and in no-car towns and things of that nature. So it's certainly worth, uh, uh, obviously, thinking about further. I, I think one of the interesting things about um, thinking of Murdahl in particular or thinking about a Nobel Prize-winning uh, economist who said X and then the country and other countries around uh, that home country for him uh, actually applied these lessons and succeeded, um, certainly, I guess, maybe stops one from hating all economists in the first, <laughs> pl in the first place. Um, so maybe we'll have to take a look at that. Um, you know, we don't have to keep looking at Milton Friedman all the time. We can look at Gunnar Myrdal and, and get some inspiration, perhaps. But as you say, there's less, there's actually less time worked in, in these countries as well as compared to the U.S. in particular, something like uh, around 1,400 hours in a work week compared to close to 1,800 hours. Uh, is that uh, not? No. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, you could you could imagine um, with Murdahl's point of view that people could then go crazy and become workaholics like uh, we hear stories from Japan. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do that. Instead, they said, yes, let's do a great job of work and then go home and have a family life or have hobbies or do whatever it is you want to do. So they love to work hard, creatively and innovatively, produce a lot and quit that work day and go home and don't take it with them. Right. And so uh, they, they uh, believe in long vacations. They love five. In fact, it's, it's a national law in those countries, five weeks of paid vacation. Uh, they can't, they can't believe the stories I tell them about Americans who have two weeks of paid vacation. They, they think it's barbaric or no or vacation one, yeah, or no vacation yeah. at all. Right. And, and one relative of mine, um, a Norwegian relative of mine had tears in her eyes when she Listen to me talk about how punitive work life is yeah. in the United States. That's a great word for it, George, punitive. Yeah, I never really thought, I mean, you do tend to imagine that and, and thinking about, you know, not wanting to go to work or having your work be a, a serious drudge. And it does it does come as uh, come as punitive at some point where this is your life and you've got to slog through it. And if you wanted to change it, you can't because you don't have the resources to do so. You can't retrain yourself without cash. You can't you cannot get you can't go on another track unless you've got real support or money already uh, in your bank account. 
Well, you know, I just I think it's one of those things where we're stuck with uh, the idea that, you know, billionaires don't just want to make money. They've already done that, and they can keep doing that without problem. Their money makes money. It doesn't matter what they do to be billionaires. And uh, but but there is something else at work there, right? There's an ideology at work. There's a sense of kingdom at work. You know, there's despotism at work. And um, you know, I do hear what you're saying. You know, it does. It is going to take um, a way to overthrow that particular economic order how how that happens is 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 going to be interesting i suppose i sure hope that we can weather that particular difficulty i suppose um i do want you to um if you don't mind um, uh, um giving me a sense of how being a quaker has influenced your sense of all these things as well i, I often have uh wonder how people come to these ideas being a quaker seems to me uh, perhaps it fits really nicely into the nordic model as well of, of working in a community and, and or unless i'm misreading quakerism but it seems like it should it should work really well in that space Quakerism does emphasize community. You're absolutely right. And also emphasizes equality. That's one of our leading testimonies ever since the 17th century. In fact, Quakers were very often thrown into jail in England in the 17th century Mm -hmm. because of believing so strongly in equality that uh, Quaker men would refuse to take off their hats in the presence of nobility. Good for them, right? Or their betters. (laughs) (laughs) In refusing to take off their hats, of course, they were breaking the law. Right. They were often hauled off to jail. Oh, you're not taking off your hat for me. You're not respecting me. Oh, the world. Yeah. That's yeah. ridiculous. So, and, and so it made sense, you know, for Quakers to be very involved in the Underground Railroad and, and the U.S. and so on, because equality has been a big deal. And so, of course, that has influenced me. And I wanted to go to the Nordic uh, uh, countries and investigate because they – are on the top of the entire international heap with regard to equality. They have achieved a greater degree of equality than anybody else. So I wanted to know their secret, you might say. And then another uh, Quaker impulse that that uh, I think leads me to my to this book is Quakers love to be practical people. Uh, yes, we are into our ideals and values, but we love practice that incorporates those values that really makes it behaviorally real. And so, again, I was attracted to understand better the Nordic model because they are intensely practical. So, yes, uh, yes, the Nordics love equality, but they also love the practical outcomes of, for example, high productivity. And so when they find, for example, uh, here would be an example just from the news a month ago. The CEO of the largest Danish corporation uh, was moved, I guess, by an interviewer to reflect on CEO pay, and uh, as compared with, you know, the regular uh, workers, the line workers in the corporation and uh, CEO pay is very low in the Nordic countries as compared with in the U.S. And the CEO, this Danish CEO was saying it's a huge mistake to have this huge proportionally, uh, proportionate difference uh, between the regular workers and the CEO, because he said that reduces morale. And then it reduces productivity. Right. Why should people take that extra step, you know, make that extra effort when they know that there's somebody upstairs 
earning four times hundred times what they earn. <laughs> it makes no sense. Right. So you're actually driving down the productivity of your own corporation when you're this narcissistic as to insist on the uh, wildly disproportionate. Uh, so that would be another example of my point that yes, they love equality. So that's one reason to really hate the uh, kind of uh, disproportion we have here in the U.S. But also, they love economic productivity. <laughs> that's it for Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to The New Improved Hypocrisy by the Radio Department. Our guests tonight were Chuck Collins, author of Born on Third Base, and activist for economic change through coalition building between the wealthy 1% and the rest of us. And George Lakey, author of Viking Economics, which describes how 100 years ago Scandinavia took a brave new tack and created a more equal, productive, and supportive society after rising up against their wealthy economic elites. Next time on Interchange, prostitution and pornography. I'm joined by Megan Murphy, founder and editor of the website Feminist Current, to discuss the neoliberal capture of feminism, which places individual freedom over the collective good. It's the neoliberal dream of sex as a marketplace. We'll look at the Nordic model, sometimes called the sex buyer law, as an approach to prostitution, which decriminalizes the selling of sex and focuses on social services and exit strategies for women and keeps the buying of sex illegal in an attempt to change the cultural perception that women exist, by and large, only for the use of men. Prostitution and pornography, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Jennifer Brooks is board engineer, and our executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB.